Hello to all my subscribers. Happy Monday and welcome to The Barons, Kindling's Stephen King Book Club. If this is your first time tuning in, then I'd like to give you a little bit of an update, tell you where we're at um, in our book club, and a little bit about our plans for the future. So currently we are working our way through Stephen King's first short story collection, Night Shift. And we are nearly done. We only have a few weeks left of that. We are covering I Know What You Need today. And next week, we are going to be covering Children of the Corn. Um, this is part of the reason I chose this short story collection. And I really cannot wait for that one. Um, Children of the Corn was also a movie. And I have very vivid memories of trying to rent it from Blockbuster and being told I couldn't, but I, I remember the cover um, vividly, and so I, I can't wait to read that story. Um, today I'm changing things up a little bit. Um, I've heard from a couple of subscribers who have asked me to add a reading of the actual article that I'm posting as well as the commentary after. So the first part of this audio is going to be a, an audio version of the article. And then after, if you'd like to stick around, I usually do about 10 or 15 minutes of just off the cuff, my gut reactions to this story. So if you're not interested in that, feel free to pass. Um, and if you are, I hope that you enjoy um, the audio version of The Barons. So happy Monday and enjoy. Skeletons in the Closet. I Know What You Need, The Dangers of Dating, and The Morality of Mind Reading. Happy Monday, and welcome to The Barons, Kindling's Stephen King Book Club. Today's story has climbed the list of my all-time favorites in the short story collection. I Know What You Need follows the themes and patterns of other works in Night Shift, touching on the occult and dark forces used for control, but in a very personal way. It is also the first and only story in this collection that was written not for a men's magazine like Playboy or Cavalier, but for a woman's, Cosmopolitan. The focus of the story, naturally, is not on the dangers of cleaning a factory basement infested with rats or alien trucks bent on murder. It follows a young woman trying to keep her college scholarship when she meets a young man who seems to have all the answers. He knows what she needs. If you would like to join in next week, grab a copy of Night Shift and read Children of the Corn. Can't wait for this one. Writing Fear Last night, I watched the beginning of season two of Yellow Jackets, a show that has scared the shit out of me every night for the past week. The imagery and storyline is deeply disturbing, and it has me reflecting on why some horror is so effective. When you're a horror writer, you're writing to get under someone's skin, to poke at something deep and primal. You want a reaction that is impossible for the audience to control. Fear goes deeper than logic. It transcends the thinking brain. King wants to do that too, and I've heard him say in some interview that I could not find, though I desperately looked for it, that he wants to hurt the reader. That's his goal. So when King wrote for men's magazines, he wrote for the audience. He wrote fears that would grip the men who read them. He wrote about dangerous workplaces, the dark side of drinking too much, and monsters that kill your children. When he wrote for Cosmopolitan, he wrote to a woman's fear, and in an intimate way. I Know What You Need asks, what if this guy you think is so great is not who you think he is? What if you're falling in love with someone against your own will, being tricked into it? Women, it is safe to say, are afraid of men. I know what makes that makes good men feel bad sometimes, but I think they understand what we mean. I think about the situations I put myself in, whether it is after dark or if there will be people around. In those nightmarish corners of my mind, I imagine what if and the shape of that fear is in the shadow of some strange man, stronger than me and filled with badness. Some modern stories have covered this from a different perspective, the Netflix show You and the gazillion Lifetime original movies I grew up watching. 
King's approach is supernatural, the power bigger than any stalker or billionaire or psychopath. For some, that makes the story silly. For others, it touches on the fear that we could be manipulated and lied to by the people closest to us, that there may be skeletons in their closets that we eventually find but too late. Elizabeth Rogan is about to lose her scholarship. We meet her in the middle of a cram session for a sociology exam that could end her time at school. She has a late night ahead of her, 16 chapters to go, when Ed Hamner Jr. approaches her in the library. He's thin, dressed in an enormous green fatigue coat and mismatched socks, and he wants to take her out for strawberry ice cream. I know what you need. You know, she said, I doubt that. You need a strawberry double-dip cone, right? He is right. Too right. She had just been thinking of ice cream. But she can't. Of course she can't. Her future depends on this test, and besides that, she has a boyfriend, Tony, and they're practically engaged. But Ed has the answers. Literally. He tells her he's taken the same course, and the exam is always the same every year. Lucky for her, he's got a photographic memory, so he copies down the multiple-choice multiple questions and answers word for word. Elizabeth heads back to her room, bewildered and in a daze. When she tells her roommate Alice, she's incredulous. She urges her not to rely on some random guy's notes from memory and to study the text, just in case. But Elizabeth knows the papers given to her by Ed are her only chance to keep her scholarship money. The following day, she takes the test and leaves, knowing that she aced it. And who is there to celebrate but Ed? He takes her out for a burger. He calls her Beth, just the way she likes, likes it. Tony calls her Liz or Lizzie, both nicknames she doesn't care for. And with that, she's headed home for the summer. She fingered the envelope that poked out of her purse. Notice of her scholarship loan package for her senior year. $2,000. She and Tony would be working together in Booth Bay, Maine this summer, and the money she would earn there would put her over the top. And thanks to Ed Hamner, it was going to be a beautiful summer, clear sailing all the way. But it was the most miserable summer of her life. Enter Ed Hamner. When summer comes, the tourists stay home, kept away by a gas shortage. The weather is gloomy and wet, and Tony wants Elizabeth to drop out of school and get married. The idea terrifies her. By July, she finds herself weeping in her apartment, feeling that her life is wrong somehow. And then the nightmare comes. She was lying in the bottom of an open grave, unable to move. Rain fell from a white sky onto her upturned face. Then Tony was standing over her, wearing his yellow high-impact construction helmet. Marry me, Liz, he said, looking down at her expressionlessly. Marry me, or else. She lies paralyzed, unable to say yes. An agreement uttered only to escape death, or else... Sorry. Or else it is then, says Tony. And then moves to a bulldozer, ready to bury Beth alive. She tries desperately to move, to speak, to do anything. But her limbs won't move, and her lips won't part. Just when she thinks it's too late, she hears Ed Hamner's voice. Let her go, our hero cries. She wakes up sobbing, soaked in sweat and shaking. She's so scared she sleeps with the light on. And a week later, Tony turns up dead. Beth finds herself grieving, but relieved. She didn't want to get married, but she didn't want Tony to die either. Ed turns up in town just in time to find her sobbing, alone, on a rocky outcrop. Beth is shocked, in disbelief, at his showing up in her hometown. How did you know? I ran into your roommate, Alice. Is that her name? He claims that he came as soon as he heard that a little red Fiat had run Tony down while he was working, repairing culverts. The car had never even slowed. Beth falls apart right there and Ed holds her as she cries. He gets her a hot meal and talks her into going back to school in the fall. He offers her menthol cigarettes, 
her favorite, and mentions her long plane ride, despite the fact she never told him about it. And the phrase that he said a couple of times to her rings in her memory. I know what you need. Like the voice of a submarine captain tolling off fathoms, the words he had greeted her with followed her down to sleep. Beth finds herself pining for Ed at the airport. She thought he would see her off. She's disappointed when suddenly an announcement comes over the PA. It's a phone call for her from Ed. He's called to ask if he'll see her at school, to tell her she's beautiful and strong, and finally, that he loves her. If this were Jane Austen, we'd be a chapter away from a double wedding. But since this is horror, we're left with a twisted gut. We know something's wrong, just as Beth does. But she is as powerless to stop what happens as we the readers are. Beth's return to school is met with a cooled relationship between her and her roommate Alice. The girls have shared a dorm since freshman year. But now Alice has retreated a bit. Beth assumes it's due to a difference in ethics around the sociology exam and puts it out of her mind. Everything gets on as usual. Beth studies a little less, goes out a little more, and waits for Ed Hamner to call. He doesn't. Not in September. By October, she tries to look him up and fails to find any record of him in the phone book. She doesn't notice the piles of mail from the private detective agency addressed to Alice, but she wouldn't. After all, there's no return address. Okay, let's pause here. If you haven't caught it, Alice has hired a private detective agency to do a little digging on Ed Hamner. Is it just me, or does this seem like a bit of an overreaction on her part? I mean, that said, what a late, what a friend. This is the girl you go to the bar with. She's smart, observant, and she's looking out for her friend's best interests. Ed does finally swing by. As soon as Beth sees him in his oversized fatigue jacket and mismatched socks, she knows she loves him. And just like that, he sweeps her off her feet and to a movie. As the days passed, it occurred to her that she had never met anyone, male or female, that seemed to understand her moods and needs so completely or so wordlessly. That's because Ed seems to know exactly what Beth wants. He takes her to the right movies, suggests the right food. He always knows what she needs. It looks like a match made in heaven. Until Alice finally breaks her silence. I have to talk to you, Liz. About Ed. What about him? It turns out Alice got suspicious after Beth wrote her and said that Ed had turned up just after Tony died. He claimed Alice had told him about it, and he had come right away. But I never saw him, Liz. I was never near the Lakewood Theater last summer. But, but how did he know Tony was dead? I have no idea. I only know he didn't get it from me. It turns out Ed has been lying about a lot of things. He never took that sociology class, which means his claims of photographic memory are a lie. He also knew Beth in grade school, and she remembers a feeling of deja vu that she had when first meeting him in the library. His father, Ed Sr., worked at an ad agency and was a compulsive gambler who was down on his luck until he started talk taking little Ed with him to the casinos. <clears throat> it was illegal, but Ed was a good kid, and the owners let it slide. Until he started winning big. It turned out Ed was quite the good luck charm. So good, in fact, that the casinos all up and down the Las Vegas Strip banned him from gambling there. So Ed Sr. took up the stock market, and his little boy was good at that too. He seemed to know things before they would happen, seemed to know just what his father needed. Mrs. Hamner spent the next six years in and out of various mental institutions, supposedly for nervous disorders, but the operative talked to an orderly who said she was pretty close to psychotic. She claimed her son was the devil's henchman. She stabbed him with a pair of scissors in 1964 tried to kill him. She, Liz, Liz, what is it? Liz remembers a scar on Ed's shoulder, a deep dimple he claimed was from falling on a picket fence as a boy. After his mother was released from the mental hospital, the family took their last vacation to the San Joaquin Valley. While Ed was collecting firewood at a picnic spot off 101, 
she drove the car right over the edge with his father in the passenger seat. It could have been an attempt to kill him. Beth can barely stand it anymore, but Alice is determined to make her listen. He's made you love him by knowing every secret thing you want and need. And that's not love at all. That's rape. Whoa. Such an interesting thought experiment around psychic abilities used to manipulate people. If you've read The Shining, you might recall that little Danny Torrance, the boy with a gift that includes the ability to read minds, makes a point of not doing it with his parents unless he has to. He feels that doing so is too invasive, a violation of some unwritten law. Here, King's universe lays out the morality of mind reading plain as day. To use a gift like that in order to know a person's thoughts so completely, and even worse, to use it to manipulate them into loving you, is a serious violation, a violation against another person's will. Elizabeth slams the door and catches a bus into town. She isn't sure if she loves him anymore, or if she only loves having someone who knows exactly what she wants and provides it. It's more like ordering from a menu than a real relationship. The wind clawed at her face as she stepped out on the corner of Main and Mill, and she winced against it as the bus drew away with a smooth diesel growl. Its taillights, tw its taillights twinkled briefly in the snowy night for a moment and were gone. She had never felt so lonely in her life. She arrives at Ed's apartment and finds a spare key to let herself in. The place seems desolate without him, like a strange movie set, everything there in its place just for her. She walks past the living room and into his bedroom, feeling like Goldilocks in the bear den. The chair is just right, after all. When she finds that his bedroom closet door is locked. She feels for the key on top of the door and unlocks it against that inner voice that tells her to stop. Unlike the rest of the apartment, the closet is a mess. A jumble of clothes and documents and pipe tobacco. Beth picks up one of the books strewn on the floor and finds these strange titles. The Golden Bough, Ancient Rites, Modern Mysteries, Haitian Voodoo, Necro... I'm going to get this wrong, guys. Uh, necro... necro Come on. Where's my HP Lovecraft people? Necron... Why can't I get it? Necronomicon. Is that it? I, can't. I, even, I even looked it up, guys, before I recorded this. Necrom Necronomicon. That's what it is. Okay. So I got curious about these books, so I asked ChatGPT what they were, and here's what I found. The Necronomicon is a fictional grimoire a book of magic that appears in the works of the American horror writer H.P. Lovecraft and later writers influenced by his work. Lovecraft first introduced the concept of the Necronomicon in his short stories, and it has since become a popular element in various forms of literature, films, and other media. The Necronomicon is often depicted as a forbidden and ancient book associated with dark and occult knowledge. Lovecraft created a sense of mystery around the book, suggesting that its contents could drive readers insane or lead them to otherworldly encounters of horror. And the Golden Bough. The Golden Bough is a comprehensive study of mythology, religion, and folklore written by Scottish anthropologist Sir James George Fraser. The book was first published in two volumes in 1890 and later expanded to 12 volumes in the third edition published between 1906 and 1915. The title refers to a bough, or branch, that is believed to possess magical properties and is used in rituals, particularly in the context of ancient fertility rites. There's a lot there. I love the Lovecraftian Easter eggs throughout this collection. We saw it in Jerusalem's Lot, us especially. I've never read Lovecraft myself, but the homage to past horror authors within his own stories is delightful for some reason. And if any of you have any details about the... <laughs> Why can't I do it? The, the Necronomicon? <laughs> Spill in the comments. Okay, guys. Uh, I've broken character.
Anyway, back to the story. She reached for the green fatigue jacket, not admitting to herself that she meant to go through its pockets. But as she lifted it, she saw something else. A small tin box. She opens it and finds a doll on top. An Elizabeth doll, made in her image. Dressed in scraps from a red scarf she had lost a few months earlier while at a movie with Ed. The pipe cleaner arms are draped in graveyard moss, and fine hair is taped to the doll's head. Not her hair as it is now, but as it was when she was still a child. Beneath that, she finds the newspaper obituary with his parents' smiling faces looking back at her. A strange, six-sided pattern drawn over their faces. Dolls fashioned in their images are underneath. A model car falls out. A Fiat painted red, with a piece of Tony's shirt taped to the front of it. Beth flips it over to find the underside hammered into fragments. So you found it, you ungrateful bitch. And this is the fear at the center of this story. Not the voodoo or the mind rape. At its core, this story is about the fear of manipulation, the ability of a partner to pretend to be something they're not and turn on you in the end. It is the story of so many women who ignore the little red flags like Beth did, only to find out that the trail of breadcrumbs was leading to real danger all along. But Beth stands as a heroine in the end. She doesn't cower in fear. She doesn't give in to Ed's false idea of forced love. She destroys his magical items, throwing them into the river. When your looks go and men stop trying to give you anything you want, you'll wish for me. I know what you need. But she was so small, or but was she so small that she actually needed so little? Please, dear God, no. I love this story, but I want to hear what you all think. Do I love it because I can relate to the fear? Exploring a possible romantic relationship in the beginning when you don't know someone can be a scary time. Online dating has taken that reality to a new level because you meet someone without the context of social circles and mutual friends. Has this fear grown in a modern context? How did you like this story in comparison to others in this collection, which were written for men's magazines? I really enjoy getting to see how King writes for a different audience, and I think he does it well. The components here are very similar, the occult, psychic powers, a book of magic, to the other stories we have read in this collection. But the perspective is altered, and in the end, Beth conquers Ed's control over her. A very different end than many of the other stories we've read. Let me know what you think, and until next week, happy reading. Okay, guys, so... uh, That's probably why I don't read my own articles. Necronomicon? (laughs) I hope that's how you say it. I don't even know. Um, For those of you still listening, if you've made it, congratulations. This is one of my longer articles, especially from a short story, but I thought there was a lot of kind of neat little Kingian um, pluses to it. And I I really enjoyed the story, if you guys can't tell as well. Um, uh, This is the part where I just kind of riff on, on the book and tell you what I thought and mispronounced Necronomicon. Why can I say it now, but not when I read the word? Anyway, um, (laughs) uh, when I can do so freely without uh, ruining your audio experience. So um, I have the book in front of me, and I just want to start by reading some of these passages, because what I I don't know, I'm not sure if it's coming across in my article, but Ed is so creepy. (laughs) And... um, I I just got to read this to you because, um, like if this was a movie, we'd really be feeling it. Um, and like I said, in my article, I don't think it's coming across just how strange he is. Like the weird little things he knows about her, um, that he has no business knowing. So it starts with the title of the story. Ed walks up to her and says, I know what you need. So first of all, just imagine that, ladies, like just a guy you've never seen before comes up to you in a library as you're studying and says, I know what you need. It's no. How about no? (laughs) So anyway, uh, Elizabeth looked up from her sociology text, startled 
and saw a rather nondescript young man in a green fatigue jacket. For a moment, she thought he looked familiar, as if she had known him before. The feeling was close to deja vu. Then it was gone. He was about her height, skinny, and twitchy. That was the word. He wasn't moving, but he seemed to be twitching inside his skin, just out of sight. His hair was black and unkempt. He wore thick, horn-rimmed glasses that magnified his dark brown eyes, and the lenses looked dirty. No, she was quite sure she had never seen him before. Okay, so he goes into the ice cream thing after that. Um, but we we soon learn, like, she, you know, they have their whole conversation about sociology and how she needs to study. Um, and he says this to her when she says that she doesn't want to break, she doesn't want to go get ice cream. He says, come on, if you hit them any harder, you'll give yourself a headache. You've been at it two hours without a break. How would you know that? I've been watching you, he said promptly. But this time his game and grin was lost on her. She already had a headache. Well, you can stop, she said, more sharply than she had intended. I don't like people staring at me. Okay, so that entry, like, or sorry, that introduction gives us like a, a different feeling now when, when she ends up falling in love with him. It makes no sense. So in the story, you're, you're realizing, like, why, why would she be attracted to this guy? She's usually with like the jocks, the frat boys, um... This guy has mismatched socks, and he's weird. He's watching her in the library. It's scary. <laughs> so anyway, he does give her the answers to those uh, to that test, and she does feel drawn to him for some reason. So I'll skip to that part. So she's just come out of the exam, and she sees who there but Ed, and he's been waiting for her to see how she did, how wonderful, except not. And he says you know, do you feel like a burger? And she's, of course she does, because uh, that's exactly what she wants in that moment. Um, So over hamburgers, they're talking about, you know, why he was on campus. He didn't have any tests because he's in honors, which I don't think that's a thing, but maybe. So she said, why are you still here? I had to see how you did, didn't I? Ed, you didn't. That's sweet. But the naked look in his eyes troubled her. She had seen it before. She was a pretty girl. Yes, he said softly. Yes, I did. Ed, I'm grateful. I I think you saved my scholarship. I really do. But I have a boyfriend, you know. Serious? He asked with a poor attempt to speak lightly. Very, she said, matching his tone. Almost engaged. Does he know he's lucky? Does he know how lucky? I'm lucky too, she said thinking of Tony Lombard. Beth, he said suddenly. What? she asked, startled. Nobody calls you that, do they? Why, no, no, they don't. Not even this guy? No, Tony called her Liz, sometimes Lizzie, which was even worse. He leaned forward. But Beth is what you like best, isn't it? She laughed to cover her confusion. Whatever in the world? Never mind. He grinned his gaming grin again. I'll call you, Beth. That's better. Now eat your hamburger. I don't know why, but I don't like that he tells her to eat her hamburger. <laughs> Does any other? Does anybody else feel bothered by that? Am I sensitive? I don't like being told what to do, so it could just be a very personal thing. But um, don't tell me to eat my hamburger. Thanks, though. Thanks, Ed. But no thanks. So then um, she is headed home. Um, she's off on a good note. She has her scholarship thanks to Ed and her and Tony are going to be working together. She's going to have enough money for her senior year. She gets to finish college. So she's feeling really good. But of course, in true King fashion, we have a nice little foreshadowing that says, but it was the most miserable summer of her life. And I'm going to open up there. It says, June was rainy. The gas shortage depressed the tourist trade, and her tips at the Booth Bay Inn were mediocre. Even worse, Tony was pressing her on the subject of marriage. He could get a job on or near campus, he said, and with her student aid grant, she could get her degree in style. She was surprised to find that the idea scared rather than pleased her. A little harsh, Beth. I mean, I don't know. Uh, 
I mean, should you just like not go to college? I mean, he said she could go to college and he could pay for both of them, but she obviously doesn't feel right about it. And she doesn't know why something was wrong. She didn't know what, but something was missing out of whack, out of kilter. One late night late in July, she frightened herself by going on a hysterical crying jag in her apartment. And that is when she has a nightmare. It's August, and in her dream, she's lying in the bottom of an open grave, unable to move. Rain is falling on her, and Tony is standing over her wearing his construction helmet. And he looks down at her and says, marry me, Liz. Marry me or else. And she is unable to move. She can't... She can't speak to avoid her death. And he just goes, well, it's her else then, and walks away, turns on a bulldozer, and is about to bury her when she hears Ed Hamner's voice. And he rescues her. She wakes up, drenched in sweat, crying, shaking, and she has to turn the light on and sleep with the light on after. And it ends that paragraph with, a week later, Tony was dead. So Tony dies in this freak accident. There's a car, um, a red Fiat that a kid is driving and he is racing, coming down a hill. Tony tries to flag him. He's, they're repairing culverts on the side of the road and the vehicle doesn't slow down. Um, and the police find that there are actual holes in the brake lines. So it's this bizarre accident that is just extremely rare. And Tony, Um, ends up being the only victim. The kid himself ends up with just some bruises. Um, And it says, her shock and depression were increased by guilt. The fates had taken out of her hands the decision on what to do about Tony. And a sick, secret part of her was glad it was so, because she hadn't wanted to marry Tony, not since the night of her dream. So she is getting ready to go home, She's sitting on a rock outcropping by herself, and she just starts to cry. Um, All the grief and all the guilt that she's feeling about her relief at not having to marry Tony um, overcome her. And at the end of her crying session, who's behind her but Ed Hamner. He says, Beth, from behind her. (laughs) And she turns around, and he explains that he heard from Alice, her, her roommate, that that Tony had died and he came as quickly as, as he could. And isn't he just such a great guy? Come on. No, this is so creepy and weird. And we're Beth, not one being mind controlled by an occultic psychic. Um, and two in the, if she wasn't in the throes of severe grief at her almost fiance having died, um, she probably would have thought more about this. It's a little bit of a red flag that this guy's always here right when you need him and always knows what's going on in your life, even though you don't talk to him at all. So they go out for dinner. He orders her exactly what she wants um, without even asking her. And he's in a Corvette. She guesses that his parents are rich. And um, yeah, he just knows exactly what to say. He has a menthol cigarette, which is exactly what she likes. And they talk and have a really good time. And then uh, he tells her that he wants her to get back because she's got a long plane ride in the morning and a lot of hassles. So she heads back and she's feeling better than she has in a long time since Tony died. And the feeling is broken up by some little questions (laughs) that she has. One, Alice telling him about Tony seems unusual. Um, the Corvette seems really expensive for, you know, him being in college. Um, the menthol cigarettes seem strange. He kissed her goodnight exactly the way she wanted to be kissed. And then he knew about her plane ride, even though she didn't say that. And here it says it bothered her. It bothered her because she was halfway to being in love with Ed Hamner. I know what you need. Like the voice of a submarine captain tolling off fathoms, the words he had greeted her with followed her down to sleep. I love that line. I think that's like brilliantly, brilliantly written. So she goes to the airport the next day and she is excited to get back to her life. And she expects to see him there and he doesn't come. And just as she's thinking that, 
there's a phone call. Um, the PA, you know, someone announces Elizabeth, I guess, I mean, do airports still do this? No, because we all have cell phones, I guess. But if they used to, let me know. It just seems weird to me. Um, millennial talking here. So yeah, the PA blares pick up the white courtesy phone and Elizabeth hears Ed's voice on the other line. And he calls to basically tell her that he loves her. So she goes back to school in September, kind of continues her old patterns. Um, and Ed doesn't call her until October. Alice is being a little bit strange. She's a little bit distant and Beth doesn't think much of it. She's kind of just doing her own thing. Um, but we find out that Beth is getting letters from a private detective agency. And so Ed shows up in October. Um, he just buzzes, you know, at the dorm room, I guess, or apartment. I'm not sure. And Beth is like freaking out. She's, you know, desperately trying to put on something pretty. And, you know, she is so excited to see him. And Alice is just kind of watching all of this. Um, watching Elizabeth's reaction to this guy. And I mean, we know she doesn't like it, but we don't know why yet. So Beth is in love. She's like fully in love. They, he goes, takes her to all the movies she likes. She doesn't like violent movies like The Godfather. He's into like comedy and nonviolent dramas, just like her. Um, he took her to the circus one night and it cheered her up. Their study dates are exactly what she needs. Um, he takes her to dances and he's great at old dances, which she loves. And they even win a 50 stroll trophy at a homecoming nostalgia dance. Um, he didn't hurry her. I mean, everything just seems totally perfect. He seems to want all the things she wants when she wants it. Um, so Alice is like strangely preoccupied. Um, when school gets back after the semester break, she's unavailable kind of for Beth um, until one night when Ed comes to pick her up, um, drops her back off and, you know, asks if she wants to come over to his place the next day. Well, Alice uh, decides when, when Beth gets home from this date that she is going to break the silence. And I wanted to read you guys this because I think it's... Um, I just, I love Alice here because she's a really good friend. On the one hand, I do find this like, this college girl is hiring a private detective agency because a guy lied to his girlfriend. Like, I don't know. It's a little unbelievable, but we got to hand it to her. She's, she's a good friend. So, um, she says, I have to talk to you, Liz, about Ed. What about him? Alice said carefully. I think that when I finish talking to you, we're not going to be friends anymore. For me, that's giving up a lot, so I want you to listen carefully. Then maybe you better not say anything. I have to try. Elizabeth felt her initial curiosity kindle into anger. Have you been snooping around about Ed? Alice only looked at her. Were you jealous of us? No, if I'd been jealous of you and your dates, I would have moved out two years ago. Elizabeth looked at her, perplexed. She knew what Alice said was the truth, and she suddenly felt afraid. Two things made me wonder about Ed Hamner, Alice said. First, you wrote me about Tony's death and said how lucky it was that I'd seen Ed at the Lakewood Theater, how he came right over to Booth Bay and really helped you out. But I never saw him, Liz. I was never near the Lakewood the Theater last summer. So, you know, that's a big lie, but Beth doesn't, doesn't really care. Uh, then she tells her, that uh, she found out that he went to school with her. He was in the first grade with her. And Elizabeth remembers that strange deja vu feeling that she had. Um, and this is like starting to get a little bit creepier because why wouldn't he have mentioned that they went to school together, right? Um, so she continues on and she's got some stuff to say about his childhoods, which I covered in the article, right? So his father is a gambler, blah, blah, blah. And it's clear that Alice is convinced that he has a special gift that um, he's been using against Beth. But it's actually worse than that, as we find out by the end of the book, because he's actually doing some type of voodoo. Like he's using some type of witchcraft against her. And King is is kind of known for not 
explaining. Like I've even heard him say in interviews that he does not go into detail about, um, you know, the why. He's like, he approaches it as if he is the character in the story. So in this case, as if he is Alice and he doesn't know what Ed Hamner is doing or why or how he has powers. Um, So for some people, that's not enough. They want like the backstory. They want to know how the magic is working, etc. But um, that's just, that's the way King writes. He writes from kind of in the moment and from the perspective of characters. Um, And so she gets extremely angry with Alice. She's hurt and she slams the door, leaves and gets on a bus and heads to Ed's apartment. And I really like the way that it describes his place and she's seeing it with new eyes, right? Like she goes in. Oh, before I hit that though, um, the idea that that's not love at all. That's rape. When she's talking about how he knows every thought in her head, I do like the way that that's covered. It's such a strange, um, kind of like ethical question if precognition was real or if like people can really read minds like what would the ethics around that be right like it wouldn't be right to um know everything someone is thinking it is a violation of like personhood in a way so i thought that was an interesting line there um and works like very well for cosmopolitan for some reason i don't know it just it does feel like you know we know that he's writing to women and um just something different from his other stories. You see this in Carrie too. Like when King is writing from a woman's perspective, um, you can see that he's trying to like capture the the thoughts that a woman would have or the problems that a woman would have with certain things. And I appreciate it. I don't know. I liked it. So um, anyway, she's very conflicted now, right? So she's on a bus. I, I have to hit this too. And she's very conflicted and she doesn't know if she actually loves him or if he's just giving her everything that she wants. And that's why she thinks she loves him. So when she goes to his house, she, it feels like a staged apartment. She says the apartment looked different with Ed gone artificial, like a stage set. It had often amused her that someone who cared so little about his personal appearance should have such a neat picture book domicile, almost as if he had decorated it for her and not himself. But of course that was crazy, wasn't it? And she notices the chair, you know, that is just right for her. It's not too soft. It's not too hard. And um, I like that little Goldilocks, um, you know, the little like Goldilocks illusion right there. So she, um, she finds this part, a nice little creepy detail. It says she went to the bookcase and ran her eye aimlessly over the titles. One jumped at her eyes and she pulled it out dance crazes of the 50s the book opened cleanly to a point some three quarters through a section titled the stroll had been circled heavily in red grease pencil and in the margin the word beth had been written in large almost accusatory letters so how creepy is that they won the the stroll contest at this like homecoming uh dance you know nostalgia dance and he has some book with her name, just the way that that's written, the greasy, the red grease pencil in the margin with the word Beth in large letters. I just find that so scary. I can't imagine finding that in your boyfriend's house. Um, yeah, so everything in the house is neat, but she goes to a closet that's locked and there's a voice inside her that tells her not to open it, but she reaches at the top of the door for a key and finds one there and opens it. And the closet is totally different. It's like, everything's thrown everywhere. It's a mess. And that's where she finds those strange occult books. And, you know, she finds these voodoo dolls. And I just think that that is like, so horrific. Like, just the idea that you find out that you're just like, oh, this is why I'm falling in love with this like weirdo dude who is nothing like any of the guys I've ever been attracted to or wanted to date who knows everything about me. Yeah, she's being manipulated um, through voodoo. And not only that, he has hair from when she was a little girl. So he's been weird for a long time. He kept her hair for all these years and he found her all these years again. The whole thing is so freaking creepy. So anyway, she finds a blue poker chip with a strange six-sided pattern drawn on it in red ink. And if you remember, his dad was very lucky at the casino. So I think we know um, that it wasn't just that he was precognitive or was a psychic. He actually is doing witchcraft to get what he wants 
Um, he's doing some type of occultic something or other, which makes it a lot darker. Um, it's not like he just has a gift, even though I'm sure he does. It's that he is actually, you know, forcing things to happen, um, manipulating. And so then she finds the obituary with his parents' faces. So it's not that his mother wanted to kill him. And so she tried to run him off. It's that he did some type of occultic ritual. He killed them. Um, and then she finds the car and realizes that he's done something to, yeah, the red Fiat that's been painted and a piece of Tony's shirt taped to the front. She finds that he actually killed Tony. And this part is so scary when he walks in and says, so you found it, you ungrateful bitch. That to me is like, yep, that's about as, as scary as it gets. This person that you think you're in love with, who you think loves you and turns out to just be a horrific, scary um, I guess witchcraft doing monster. Um, so the part that is a little hard for me to take, and this is an issue that I have in a lot of King's stories is that, I mean, he's obviously like kind of powerful, right? Um, and Beth is putting up like a really, her voice is steady. She's just telling him like, I know what you did. And I never want to see you again. If you do this to anyone else, I'll fix you. Right? Like she's not scared. Um, but man, listen to this scary thing. Like he has this little monologue to her and it's so scary. And then he just kind of melts in front of her and I don't really get it. So it says he took another step into the room. Um, so she's sorry. She's just told him you killed Tony. And he takes a step into the room and says, yes. And I did it for you. And what are you, Beth? You don't know what love is. I loved you from the first time I saw you over 17 years ago. Could Tony say that? It's never been hard for you. You're pretty. You never had to think about wanting or needing or about being lonely. You never had to find other ways to get the things you had to have. There was always a Tony to give them to you. All you ever had to do was smile and say please. His voice rose a note. I could never get what I wanted that way. Don't you think I tried? It didn't work with my father. He just wanted more and more. He never even kissed me goodnight or gave me a hug until I made him rich. And my mother was the same way. I gave her her marriage back, but was that enough for her? She hated me. She wouldn't come near me. She said I was unnatural. I gave her nice things, but Beth, don't do that. Don't. Don't. She stepped on the Elizabeth doll and crushed it, turning her heel on it. Something inside her flared in agony and then was gone. She wasn't afraid of him now. He was just a small, shrunken boy in a young man's body. And his socks didn't match. I like that line right there. His socks didn't match. But the part that I don't like is then she just walks out with all of his magical things. And it just seems like, shouldn't he be more powerful than that? I don't know. I don't know how voodoo works. So correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Doesn't that seem like a very swift resolution? Like she's just like, anyway, the, the thing I was going to say is I've noticed this in other King books, like it specifically because Pennywise is just so tremendously powerful in that book. And then he's beaten by very ordinary things. Um, now, granted, I do sense from King that he kind of subscribes to the belief that faith is actually what kills monsters. Um, you see that in Salem's Lot, for example, like when the priest starts to doubt when he actually doesn't have faith, then the vampire is able to win, right? So maybe there's something there because Beth has faith in herself and she's not afraid of him. Maybe that's what defeats him. Like in, in it, it's like, you know, one kid uses his inhaler. Um, another uses his, uh, his like stuttering rhymes that he practices to try and help him not stutter. But maybe those are the things that give them faith in themselves. And maybe, maybe that's what we're taking away from here. I kind of like that. So I'm reversing as I'm, as I'm telling you guys this, I may be reversing that. Um, what I do appreciate is that Beth ends, it ends with her just going like, I'm not going to give into this. Like <laughs> I deserve to actually have real love. I'm not going to go for this weirdo relationship just because I get everything I want. Um, and it ends with her standing on the bridge between the campus and town, and she throws his scraps of magic over the side piece by piece. And it says, 
The red-painted model Fiat went last, falling end over end into the driven snow until it was lost from sight. Then she walked on. So, I think a, I think a good ending. Um, I like that the woman ends strong. I, I think it was like a, a bold move for horror. Um, you know, like, modern horror has women winning a lot. But back in the day, like, that was one of the biggest criticism, that horror was just full of violence against women. And you see that in film as well, that, like, there's always just women being, like, you know, brutally murdered or raped even. I mean, it was it was a big, big issue um, that a lot of female writers resented, I think, and worked really hard to fight against. Uh, not that it can never happen in horror, but that it shouldn't be... <laughs> You shouldn't have every time that there's a woman or similarly like black characters in horror movies specifically where like the black character always dies. And thankfully, there's a lot of um, challenges to that trope now. And you have, I mean, Jordan Peele is like leading the way in reshaping horror and kind of playing on all those tropes. Um, if you've seen Get Out, I thought that, that was like such a, I mean, it's on the nose, but it was so great because it's so ridiculous in the in the movies, that trope is so ridiculous and overplayed. So um, I kind of liked the way that he, with some comedy and a lot of sadness, like reversed that and uh, kind of flipped that trope on its head. So I can appreciate what King is doing. And of course, he's doing it for Cosmopolitan. So there's a little bit of marketing involved there where like he knows who he's writing for and he's trying to sell a story. And I think he does a really good job. Like as a woman, I enjoyed this story. Um, and I think it plays very well to like a very, very deep fear. And I know I covered that in my article, but I think it is true that women are afraid of men. Um, and there's good reason for that. A man you don't know um, could be like the most dangerous person that you're meeting that day. And that's been reinforced, of course, by probably like, you know, over coverage or I don't know how you would say that. But the media may be making the world seem more dangerous than it is um, at the same time. Um, women do have to be careful. Um, so I appreciate, uh, this story. I think it hits on a lot of things that at least myself and other women in my life I know are afraid of. And, um, I found Ed to be just like such a creepy, slimy, weird character. And I was, yeah, I'm so glad she got away. Um, so what did you all think? Um, if you are reading this in the newsletter, or if you haven't, but you want to join in on the conversation, please leave a comment, comment on somebody else's, um, comment. I have so many smart, amazing readers who just have like really cool insights or just great, funny comments that you can read. So please go participate, see what they're saying. And, um, until next week, I hope that you have a wonderful week. Let me know what you think about this. This is a long one. Um, is this too long? Do you want me to go back to just the, you know, just the commentary without the reading? Um, let me know how you're enjoying this. Um, if you're not, let me know that too. And um, I can't wait to cover Children of the Corn. I cannot wait. I'm going to watch the movie this week as well. So if you guys are interested in that, um, I'll post a time or day that I'm watching it in my chat on the Substack app and feel free to watch along with me. Um, until next week, happy reading.